Hello! You're listening to Cut Pathways, a podcast produced by Carnegie Mellon University. I'm Catherine Barbera. And I'm Dave Bernabo. This podcast dives into the university's archive of recorded oral histories to showcase the people that have made Carnegie Mellon what it is. We are continuing our Season 2 series, The Wild West of Computing, by exploring author Pamela McCordick's oral history interview, which was conducted in 2018. The interview covers an intellectually potent time in the 1970s, as Pamela was working on her book, Machines Who Think, a personal inquiry into the history and prospects of artificial intelligence. Sadly, Pamela McCordick passed away on October 18, 2021. She was 80 years old. I had the privilege of interviewing her in 2018. She was a warm and inspiring person with boundless curiosity who pulled you into her world through vivid stories about her singular life and adventures. She will be missed. The foreword to the 2004 edition of Pamela McCordick's book starts with a humorous bit of inspiration. She writes, Machines Who Think has its own modest history that may be worth telling. In the early summer of 1974, John McCarthy, who, by the way, coined the term artificial intelligence, made an emergency landing in a small plane in Alaska at a place called, roughly translated, the Pass of Much Caribou Dung. So remote a spot, he could not radio for help. Fortunately, John was rescued. It occurred to me then that before mortality claimed them, somebody ought to go around and ask these guys who'd begun in this odd field called artificial intelligence what they thought they were doing and why. And that is what Pamela did. Published in 1979, Machines Who Think summarizes the state of artificial intelligence at that time. Like our attempts here in documenting computer science at CMU, Pamela's book isn't exhaustive, but it is fascinating. The 2004 updated edition of the book covers the increasing mechanization of thinking, from Aristotle introducing syllogistic logic, the first formal deductive reasoning system, to a set of his and hers multifunction robots that were offered in the 2003 Neiman Marcus Christmas Catalog the price tag being $400,000. So the book covers a large span of time. Pamela interviews a number of names that you've heard in this podcast. Alan Newell, Herb Simon, and Raj Reddy among them. And she discusses a number of important events, like the Dartmouth Conference, an influential multi-month workshop that occurred in 1956. It was here that John McCarthy who you may remember from the caribou story a little bit earlier, proposed the term artificial intelligence. And Alan Knoll, Cliff Shaw, and Herb Simon demonstrated the first working AI program, the logic theorist, capable of automated reasoning. Strangely, Newell and Simon didn't like the term artificial intelligence and instead referred to their work as complex information processing. In our oral history interview, Pamela discusses her friendship with Herb Simon, 
her interest in AI, and the research that she did for Machines Who Think. Pamela also reveals the membership of a not-so-secret society called the Squirrel Hill Sages. We'll let Pamela tell the story. I was working my way through college at Berkeley, and I had a job in the uh, School of Business. Now, that was as far away from being an English major as you could possibly get, and of course I was feeling pretty snooty about English literature as compared to all this business stuff. And my job was uh, typing course outlines and syllabuses and exams and so on. And I kept coming across this phrase, artificial intelligence, but I had no idea what it meant. Also, (laughs) I kept coming across the name Herbert A. Simon. And it was in management of organizations, it was in organization theory, it was in artificial intelligence, of course, it was in municipal government. And you know what I thought? I thought, boy, this field, this field of business is really thin stuff if one guy does all this. (laughs) I did not know the term polymath. Anyway, I took a, a semester off because working your way through college, even in those days, was hard work. I took a semester off, and when I came back, two young guys were going to do a book. And they came to me, and they said, Pamela, would you like to work on our book? And I said, yeah. Uh, What's it about? (laughs) And the the two young guys were Ed Feigenbaum and Julian Feldman. And they said, well, it's about artificial intelligence. And I said, oh, uh, yeah say more. And Ed, I remember very vividly, said, puff, puff, puff on his pipe, "Uh, artificial intelligence is computers doing things which if humans did them, we would say that's intelligent behavior. Okay, sounds like fun. So I did spend um, that spring semester up until the fall when I was due to go back to graduate school working on their book. I was the gopher, you know, I would go to all these various libraries and cut out Xerox and cut out articles that were going to go in a book which was eventually called um, Computers and Thought. Then I didn't go to graduate school then. I had, I went to work in my family's business and that was not a, a very good match for me. So after a couple of years, Ed Feigenbaum, who had moved down to Stanford from Berkeley, called me and he said, I'm at Stanford, and I'm in their computer science department. They actually have a computer science department. This is 1965. Would you like to come and be my assistant? I said, yeah, sounds like fun. And that led to my immersion in artificial intelligence. After two years, Pamela received a scholarship to study at Columbia University in 1969. She and Joe Traub, who you may remember from episode three, married in December of that year. We actually met at Stanford. He was a visiting professor, but things didn't really take off until the fall that I came to Columbia. He had been at Bell Labs and was still at Bell Labs. And when we finally got married, finally we got married in 1969, December 1969, he'd like to say that He sat down and convinced me that we could save on taxes if we 
got married before the end of the year. And it was true, we could in those days. But really, I think there was more to it than that. I was thinking the other day that uh, when Joe and I were married for 48 years, and when, the, when I heard the key in the lock, my first thought was, here comes fun. Because Joe would come in just spouting a hundred ideas, and it was always such a joy to see him. My marriage was full of joy. It was just wonderful. Uh, yeah, we had our hard times. We were human beings. Uh, but Joe was the one who would sit on my suitcase and say, you're not leaving. I don't care how unhappy you are. You are not leaving me. As we mentioned in the third episode of the season, Joe Traub was head of the computer science department at Carnegie Mellon from 1971 to 1979. In 1979, Pamela and Joe headed back to Columbia University. Accurately as possible. The steel industry was closing. Everybody, no, everybody didn't know that. Most people thought, this is just a hiccup. Steel will come back to what it once was, Pittsburgh will come back to what it once was, and everything will be fine. Well, that was not going to be. And those people with vision here, and I include the then president of Carnegie Mellon, Richard Seyert, Herb Simon, a handful of other people said, we're going to do something different in Pittsburgh. We're going to green Pittsburgh. And in 1972, 73, this was a, a radical idea, very radical. Okay. Meanwhile, you could go through fine places in Pittsburgh and find slag heaps in the middle of the road because, or on vacant lots because nobody thought they were worth removing. The warehouses, which are now full of high-tech, they were left to rust because nobody thought it was worth tearing them down. And the promise of greening seemed to me to be so far away. I just didn't think I wanted to spend my life here. Anyway, I said to Joe, um, I got to get out of here. And I hope you're coming with me, but I'm leaving. So he and a couple of other people said, well, at least uh, by that time, by, I was teaching at the University of Pittsburgh, at least go through the tenure process. It will be better for you if you have tenure to get another job. So I said reluctantly, okay. Well, the tenure process was an absolute disaster. My colleagues in the English department had no publications, two publications, maybe one book, and I had my third book in press. It was Machines Who Think. And these people were saying, she sold out to the machines. Uh, she's not one of us. Why would she want tenure? We don't want her. Uh, I was denied tenure and asked to try again the following year. So we went to New York.
finding a publisher for Machines Who Think, which was my first American publication, was very hard. Uh, most publishers in England were, oh, sorry, in New York were saying, machines, thinking, no, no, don't be silly. You want to write science fiction, that's one thing. Uh, but that's not science. And it took Joe. Joe picked up the phone and called a couple of friends. A couple of friends called another couple of friends. And the next thing I knew, I had an interview with the book publishing arm of Scientific American. And the editor there was Peter Renz. And Peter was fascinated by this idea that I was doing a book about artificial intelligence. And he said, yeah, we'd like to publish it. And meanwhile, I was publishing uh, articles in scholarly magazines about artificial intelligence, but in humanities scholarly magazines. I wasn't publishing in you know, the Journal of Artificial Intelligence. I had nothing to say to them. But I did have a lot to say to the humanities about AI. How I came on the idea was I had just finished a novel which never got published called Three Rivers. We'd gone out to Stanford for the summer. This is before we had our condo in Berkeley. And I was lying in the shade. I thought, I should write a novel about these weird people in artificial intelligence. And then I thought, no, why, why write a novel? Why not write a history? And it'll be really easy. I just go around to my friends and say, what do you think you're doing? What do you think's going to happen? You know, easy peasy. Splice it all together. Lo and behold, instant book. Well, ha, ha, ha. That's not how it turned out. But uh, first of all, I tried it out on Joe. And he said, brilliant idea. Do it. And I must say that about Joe. He was so supportive of me. Anything I did, I owe my career to Joe because he was always there for me. <laughs> There's a dedication. I think it's in Machines Who Think, but I, it may not be. It may be in a later book. Uh, the dedication is to Joseph Traub, who never let me down. And we both agreed that that was code for he never let up on me. <laughs> so then I tried the idea out on Ed Feigenbaum, maybe a few days later. He said, great, I'll help you. You know the Carnegie Mellon people, you know the Stanford people, we'll put you in touch with the MIT people. And that was artificial intelligence in those days. You didn't need to know anymore. And I started by interviewing Ed Feigenbaum. He was my tryout. That's where he told the famous story of Herb Simon coming into class in one January and saying, over the Christmas holidays, Al Newell and I invented a thinking machine. <laughs> so then I, I began the interview process. And I was reading, of course, all the time, because one of the things I, 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 I for a long time, taught students to write about science. One of the things I insisted they do is read the papers of the people that they were interviewing. And so I was reading Newell's papers. I was reading Simon's papers. I was reading the papers of everybody I interviewed. It was so hard for me. I was an English major. What did I know? There were times parts of that book were written through a veil of tears because it was so hard for me. I, I will never do this. I will never be able to do this right. And yet, somehow I did it. <laughs> somehow I did it. I didn't want to ask these guys what, what their papers meant. I really wanted to go in prepared. It would take absolute desperation for me to say, Herb, I didn't understand what you meant by but there were times when I had to say that. And Herb was a natural teacher. Pamela, this is another way of looking at it. Alan was a natural teacher. Pamela, look at it this way, and so on. 
oh, they were fabulous. And, and Ed Feigen, I was a lot less shy about calling Ed Feigen and say, what's this? And he would explain to me. I had wonderful mentors, wonderful mentors. I told you that I kept seeing this name in, in the business school, Herb Simon. It was, I later compared it to as if all English literature had been written by uh, Dryden, you know, somebody you've heard of, but nobody great. And when I finally, after those two years at Stanford, I really understood how great he was. So there's a big reception when Joe and I arrive here for welcoming the new chair and his wife. And there's Herb Simon. I am absolutely tongue-tied. Rock star, rock star. I mean, oh, fabulous. Slowly, we got to know each other. Joe and I were living on an, in an apartment on Fifth Avenue, uh, just by Wilkins. And we would have parties, and I'd get to know him there. But we really didn't become very friendly until... Joe and I bought a house, which is at the intersection of Forbes and Northumberland. And Herb would walk home every day along that street, because he lived on Northumberland, but about two more miles up, up the street. And I would see his hat floating past the hedge. In the summertime, he wore a black beret. And in the wintertime, he wore a chuuya, you know, these uh, Peruvian things that come down over your ears and have a little tassel. But I'd see this, and I'd be putting my cover over my typewriter just then. And I would lean out the door, and I'd say, Herb, would you like a sherry? <laughs> and Herb almost always wanted a sherry, so he'd come in. And that's when we really got friendly with each other. And we had such a good time together. We just covered the waterfront. He was so interested in linguistics, so we talk about that. He was in, of course, we talked about artificial intelligence. We talked about music. We talked about art. Whatever we felt like talking about. He was marvelously relaxed and funny. I, I think he looks so serious in all these pictures. If you listen to those tapes, Herb and I are laughing like hell all the way through them. Uh, partly we were flirting with each other, no question. But also partly we just enjoyed laughing, both of us. And we saw the funny side of everything. <laughs> okay, so those were afternoons with Herb. They were wonderful, just wonderful. Uh, I didn't realize how often we met until I went back and looked at my journals. And there's a kind of footnote here. Dorothea Simon and I never got past a certain coolness. And I thought it was my rather militant feminism, which it was very militant in the 70s. Then, you know, much later I realized here was her husband stopping off at least once a week with a much younger woman to have a sherry. These conversations were so cerebral. I mean, you she had nothing to worry about, but I could understand in retrospect how it seemed, you know, maybe a little questionable. My relationship with Alan was somewhat different. I do feel that for a long time Alan thought I was a, a feather brain, chair's wife, faculty wife, ooh, I hate that term. And we didn't really get to know each other very well right at first. 
And then when I started interviewing him for the book, I guess my questions weren't all that dumb because he really warmed up to me. We became very friendly. The conventional view of people who were doing this was that they were absolute nerds in the worst possible way. They were dreadful, dreadful human beings. They were at their computer screens 24-7. They had no interest outside their computer screens, blah, 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 blah. Now, I was keeping company with people who had omnivorous appetites for the world. Uh, I should tell you about the Squirrel Hill sages. Uh, at some point, Herb and I were discussing how our students had the most interesting conversations, you know, the meaning of life and all that stuff. And we're stuck with conversations about the Xerox budget and, you know, can we add another course and should this course be two semesters or one? You know, really dull stuff. And I said, you know, how, how can this be? Herb said, you know, Dot and I used to have a little salon when we were at the University of Chicago on Sunday nights. And everybody knew it was serious. You didn't come in just to gossip. You came in to discuss a topic of the day. Uh, you could do that. You could do that, meaning me. And I said, oh, Herb, that sounds wonderful. Okay, I, I will do it. We decided that it should be a very small number. I think there were eight of us. Alan Newell and his wife, Herb Simon, and... Dorothea Simon, the novelist Mark Harris, and his wife Josephine, and Joe and I. And we met monthly. We decided the topic ahead of time. It was after dinner, so nobody had to run around being the host or anything like that. And privately, I call them the Squirrel Hill Sages, because we all lived in Squirrel Hill. But uh, they found out soon enough. <laughs> they laughed. That was okay. Uh, we had some fabulous conversations. Just fabulous. You could imagine those eight in one room talking. It was just great. It was one of the high points of living in Pittsburgh. I had a secret agenda, a subconscious agenda in AI that I didn't know about, really. And I, it didn't come out to me until one night I was sitting with Harold Cohen, the painter, and we had had a glass of wine or two. And he said, Pamela, why were you drawn to artificial intelligence? And I gave him the usual, you know, the most interesting people I know were doing it. What an exceptional thing it is going to be if it works, and we think it's going, it feels a lot more like it's going to work now than it did 20 years ago. And then something popped out of me which was totally unconscious, and that was, and I think it will put an end to the masculine hegemony in intelligence generally. I thought, did that come out of my mouth? Yeah, it did. And yeah, it was true. And oh, I was wrong. But I didn't know that at the time because we still had hopes that this, the machine would somehow be disinterested in a way that humans are, are not disinterested. And that is my great disappointment 
with AI right now, that it isn't making a more even playing field. Certainly Silicon Valley is one of the most sexist places on the planet. And they should be ashamed of themselves and they should do more about fixing it. Even after they left CMU, Pamela and Joe Traub continued to stay involved in the university. Here is Samuel Lemley, curator of special collections at Carnegie Mellon, talking about the Traub McCordick collection. We're very fortunate at the libraries to have um, the collection of computing devices and artifacts that was formed by Joseph Traub and Pamela McCordick kind of through know, the 1970s, 80s, and 90s. And uh, Joe Traub was the second head of the School of Computer Science. And uh, Pamela McCordick was a major um, you know, historian of artificial intelligence, as you know. But so she, on, on Joe Traub's death, she um, gave his collection of computing artifacts and devices to the university libraries. Joe and I started collecting antique comput computational instruments in the 80s. Uh, you know, kids were through college, we finally had some extra money. And Gwen Bell, who was then married to Gordon Bell, said to Joe, well, first of all, she took us to the small museum that she'd started near digital equipment. That later moved to Boston, became the Boston Computer Museum, and later still, went out to Silicon Valley, which is the right place for it, I guess. Anyway, she said to Joe, hey, you know, you can pick this stuff up for a song if you want to collect something. And oh, oh, that was catnip to Joe. And because of that, we really now have the core of an incredibly important collection that documents the history of computing. You know, we have major books on that subject as well, but it's nice to have the artifacts and devices that those books describe. For example, um, we have the first edition of Leibniz's design for the Step Reckoner. It was published in 1703, um, so it's really wonderful to have his description of this artifact and then the artifact itself. We can sort of display them together, teach with them together, and that's, that's an unusual thing. The collection, which is now known as the Traub McCordick Collection, also has two Enigma machines. Joe was in a network, a very informal network of people who knew and were keeping track of who had Enigma machines uh, in private hands. Every once in a while we'd hear somebody you know, was, was ready to turn one into cash, and so we bought the three-rotor Enigma first, and then he lusted for a four-rotor Enigma and he got that. We sent a, a check, it was probably the most expensive machine we bought, $10,000, which now, of course, they're hundreds of thousands of dollars at auction. We got other things too, and we never paid much money for these things. And here is Sam Lemley again with a little more detail on what is in the collection. Um, it has a Thomas arithmometer, which is another important early mechanical calculator. Uh, it has the Curta mechanical calculator, which is a handheld mechanical calculator used in the 70s, um, and a variety of other things. I think it goes up to 
think the latest thing we have in the collection, the most recent thing, is a Power Mac G4. I think that's right uh, from Apple. So it, it's it's a pretty wide range of artifacts. I am. Is the word proud? Grateful that I've had this long connection with artificial intelligence. It, it has been a splendid shaping gift for my life. What an opportunity to be in on the ground floor. I mean, how lucky can you get? I'm grateful for having had a very happy marriage uh, to one of the greats in the field. and. Just having a whale of a good time the whole time. Uh, I'm grateful to have been in on the ground floor, but I'm really envious that I'm not going to get to see it go on because immortality is, is, a, is a fact. Just what, what fun I've had. What fun I've had. Thank you for listening to Cut Pathways. Next time on the podcast, we'll hear from Clint Kelly about autonomous land vehicles. Clint was director at DARPA and worked with a number of researchers like Red Whitaker and Chuck Thorpe from Carnegie Mellon. Clint traveled the world for DARPA and tells a few stories about these trips, including taking CMU researchers to see horses for the first time to study locomotion. See you next time. Cut Pathways is a production of the Oral History Program at Carnegie Mellon University. This episode was written and edited by Catherine and Dave, and Dave made all the sounds. All the oral histories are available within the university archives, housed in the Carnegie Mellon University libraries.